Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. On today's episode, I'm joined, as always, by Greg. Hey! And we are reviewing Crazy Carts. But before we jump into that, let's talk about what we've been playing. Yes, please, let's do. We had a chance to introduce two of our friends to Brewcrafters this past weekend, which was super fun for me, obviously, loving yep. the game, and then super gratifying as well when, after the end of the game, they were like, yeah, we really enjoyed that. You know, it was a lot of fun, and it took them, you know, again, intimidating to explain to people, but they jumped into it pretty quick, and I think by the end of the game, they had a, a pretty good understanding of what they were aiming for and, and how all the pieces fit together. I agree, and I think that it was a lot of fun to just see the realizations over the course of the game of how this all works together, how this fits together, and how the game itself is almost a little bit like puzzle-like because you're having everything and going together and having to get certain things and the cost-benefit analysis of everything. It was a lot of fun, and I tried a different strategy than I normally do, which was going for one type of beer that was a lot, a lot of fame, and didn't fully work out for me. He pulled it off really well, though. I mean, this was an extremely expensive beer. We're talking, what, 12 ingredients per beer, and you were churning out one a turn, which was just flabbergasting to me. We ran out of the beer tokens for that, and I think that the game had a lot fewer of those because they weren't expecting people to do that, but luckily... I I think that's probably true. Also, luckily, we were were playing at Labyrinth, you know, Mm -hmm. our local game store, and so... Someone there was like, hang on, we're going to go text Ben, you know, yeah. Ben Rossett, the creator of the game. And he, I think, texted back and yeah. confirmed that, you know, every piece in the game is supposed to be inexhaustible. So you were able to count yourself as having extra of the tokens that didn't exist. But it was just a definitely a funny moment. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, having the desi- designer on speed dial is pretty interesting. It's a perk. What can we say? Definitely, definitely. But as always, Brewcrafters was a lot of fun. You ended up pulling out the win. I did. At first, you said it was by two points, and then you went up to six, and then I think you went up to 18 points ahead of us. You know what? I really wasn't trying to rub it in your face. I don't know if you can believe me at this point, but you'll just have to take me in my word. No worries. Everyone was thinking that I was going to pull it out because of just creating so many of the, that one beer. But You did have a really strong engine, but yeah. you know, that's the way it goes. It was interesting, though, this game, they really used the collaboration option. Yeah, I think we had, over the course of the game, at least three, I think possibly four collaborations, which is more than either of us have ever seen in a single game. Mm -hmm. Um, Quite honestly, I think more than I've ever seen in every game that I've ever played. People don't usually go in for the collaborations, but, you know, they, they contributed first which obviously you know made us realize mm-hmm. that it was viable and i think that's the thing once somebody yeah. indicates signals that they're willing to do that mm-hmm. other people kind of jump on and say like oh, okay this really isn't that many ingredients that many yeah. resources and the payout's pretty nice yeah i was very surprised because you guys having at least you had three of them on your own i was in the first one so i think that there were a total of four in there and i'd never seen them used before at all and just the accumulation of points from that, they, you know, it would be one of the payouts of the collaborations, and one person would get like five points and money. And at that point, I'm like, I'm starving for money, but I literally cannot use my cubes for anything else if I'm going to keep turning out this beer. So I was a little bit stuck on that. But in general, it was definitely a very useful thing that uh, to actually use the collaboration. And I think that 
especially if we play with them anymore, like they're going to be using that collaboration a lot more. I think so. And two, that's, you know, just another thing. These games that are pretty intricate, you learn once and then you've got your sea legs, so you want to play it again and Mm -hmm. use what you've learned. I feel like there's a lot of ways in which the patterns that emerge the first time that you play kind of influence your play style at least until you get to the point where you've really started to dig in and analyze the game. So for people like you and me, where Mm -hmm. the first couple of times we played collaboration wasn't viable, that wasn't even on our radar. And then for these two, it's probably going to be kind of a go-to strategy for them to get little bits of money, little trickles of points Mm -hmm. each time they play, which is really interesting to think about, just sort of those patterns of learning. Yeah, and it was also interesting because I think they were a little bit... Or I, I know at least one of them was a little bit pigeonholed into that because he was the last uh, at the beginning. Yeah. So when the two of us uh, went in on like the the skilled workers as well as the other local collaborations and all that, he was a little bit left in the in the dust. So he went for the collaborations, and it it just worked very well for him. Right. Right. So it was a lot of fun to, to teach uh, the new game, though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Or new players, technically. But so that was great. We did that this past weekend. And then just the other day, we had a chance to play a new game via Nebula. Or at least it was new for me. I know you'd played once before. No, I hadn't played. I just talked to Kathleen. She's the one who suggested it for me. That's right. And I was very excited to actually try to play it. I got it right before WashingCon, but wasn't able to bring it to the table until yesterday, pretty much. Or this week, pretty much. Sure. So uh, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. It's an interesting take on the whole pick up and deliver game. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that you have to create your own paths rather than, you know, you know, uh one of the people we were playing with compared it to Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um in the sense that you have these resources that are on the board and then you don't actually get anything for those resources until you transfer them to a different area and use them to to make something but unlike those games where you have pre-existing channels you have to lay down you have to explore the fog and create the channels which can lead to some interesting tactical opportunities Mm -hmm. i know there were a couple of times you actually Mm -hmm. utilized a pretty effective strategy where you did almost no exploration of your own yeah but instead used the paths that other people had created to build your sites exactly and it was very interesting because it just it worked in a different way. I'm a big fan of train games in general, which are mostly pick up and deliver games. But you had a lot more ability to move things around. Uh, the setting was pretty interesting, like the art style and everything like that. The other cool part was that as soon as a path was made, it could be used by anyone. Yeah. And you didn't have to have like your own path or someone else's path. So it was very strategic on when to place the meadow tiles. Because, for example, I know that there were a lot of instances where probably both of us, since we were on the same square, were thinking, okay, I really need this one resource, but it's going to take me both of my actions this turn in order to do that. And then if I open that up, the other one is going to go ahead, grab that resource, and finish the building that I'm looking at. Yoink. Right, because it's not just paths that are communal. Mm-hmm. It's once the resources hit the field, even if you have your worker on that hex, if your worker was the one that revealed the exploitation, mm-hmm. Anybody can take those resources as long as they have a valid path to one of their build sites. So you really got to consider not even just do I need these resources and can I get them to my site, but also who else might need these resources and are they going to be siphoning them away from me? Exactly. Or are they competing for the same building that I am? 
And yeah, that happened a lot. Yes, I think it did. I got beat out for what three or four buildings, something like that. I think there's an achievement for that in Civilization: get beat to a wonder x number of times. Yeah, you would have gotten that one pretty easily, probably. But but ah well. Yeah, it happens. Uh, in general, the game itself was, I think, a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoyed it. I thought that it was very interesting having to create those paths and, and move them around. And I think the other interesting resource management part of this was that you couldn't have extra resources. Right, yeah. You were actually penalized for extra resources, which then led to certain types of buildings where it said, when you complete this building, you may remove one of your resources from the board. So, mm -hmm. you know, if somebody built the thing that you wanted to build that required wheat, and now you've switched your strategies and require... A building that doesn't have wheat mm -hmm. that's either a dead point unless you happen to get this one building that removes it from the field so it's it's interesting you know sort of an unusual way penalizing you for gathering too many resources exactly you're not you're not allowed to be a hoarder in this game yes definitely not unlike some other games you have to just take what you need and that's it and i really like the spatial aspect of this because it's always random where everything pops up and you just have to bring it to the right space that you are controlling and you have to figure out what the best route is and what's the best for you if you don't want all the people stealing it and just a very interesting game in general yeah and then we also played a quick game of flip city yes which was the first time for either of us kind of a card-based city building game similar to mystic veil in the sense that it plays straight from deck to mm -hmm. field and then the kind of the the bust out mechanic being if you have too many of a particular symbol in this case unhappiness yeah you end your turn immediately and don't get to buy things but i think we both agreed and so did the people we were playing with just less successful in terms of execution yeah definitely it was the kind of thing where the cards had two sides so you couldn't really shuffle without seeing something uh there were other issues in general with just how the wording was and the interaction between players was also a little bit confusing especially at first and i think that it's the kind of game that the idea behind it is decent but the execution itself was not done the best i would agree it was really interesting conceptually and i picked up the box and i said oh this could be neat and mm -hmm. then we got to playing it and realized you know there was some confusion regarding the rules just some issues regarding how you're supposed to deal your deck, shuffle your deck without revealing too much information to yourself. And it's just some of those design choices that really started to emerge as being counterproductive even. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we will be reviewing that in, on a later podcast. So look forward to that. We will go a little bit more in depth about what we think of the game and why we think the way that we do. So look forward to that. But that's what we've been playing. Right, it's time now to put the pedal to the metal with our review of Crazy Carts. This was a game that you and I have both described as Mario Kart the board game. Yep. That same kind of kookiness involving races and power-ups and attacking your opponents. All that sort of good, chaotic fun. Yeah, pretty much. It's an interesting game uh, where you are on a team with one partner. And the interesting part is you cannot talk to your partner. So you are working on one side, you have one board that's yours, and your partner has the other half. One of you is controlling the front, one of you is controlling the back of the cart. 
it's very interesting because it's not like the front has both the steering and the brakes. It's the rear has the brake and the turn. Yes. The front has the accelerator, which becomes a yeah. big problem because the mechanics of how you turn mm -hmm. require that you commit a certain number of resources equal to or greater than your current speed. So yeah. if the front accelerates when the back didn't expect it, the back can end up having wasted cards and blown the turn. And, you know, yeah. it's just one of those things where it really requires that both pilots be very in sync and also just questionable engineering on these carts. <laughs> yes, for sure. In general, I think all these carts would definitely not be road safe in, oh, in, our, <laughs> in our condition. The game itself is two races. So you start with the prelims and then you go into the final. The prelims is a shorter track, the final is a longer track. The map itself is uh, consisted of a few segments which are double-sided and you can switch out all the time. And they also have spaces for obstacles. Right. You have to go from the start line to the finish line through the obstacles. Whoever gets there first wins. That's the game. Sounds pretty simple. And yet. Yes. So... Let's talk about some of the actions. We talked about the speeding up, the braking, and the turning. But there are some other ones. Right, yeah. So the game is essentially divided into two phases each round. The first phase, you've got a certain number of cards in hand that have steering wheels, which are representative of your actions, essentially. Mm -hmm. So you can commit those actions to any of the abilities that are on your board, and you do it in secret. So if I'm the back, I'm going to commit... Maybe two to initiative, which determines which team gets to act first. I see that we're about to run into an obstacle, so I'm going to put some into turn. And I'm anticipating that we're going to get shot, so I'm going to put some into repair. Mm -hmm. And that's the first phase. That's sort of the, the planning, programming phase. And then everyone reveals. And the initiative, based on who commits, or which team, rather, commits the most initiative, determines the order of the rest of the round. Yeah. So that goes first. Then anyone is allowed to activate their special, unique racial power, mm -hmm. um, which we'll get into later, followed by the activating like power cards, essentially. And these are, again, to go with the Mario Kart analogy, power-ups that you drive over mm -hmm. and can get and use on other people or use on yourself. Yep. Once that's done, you have your unique special ability that is only used in the advanced version of the game, which we haven't played with yet. Then you have braking, speeding up, turning. In that order. Right. But also importantly, between speeding up and turning, you actually move your cart, which isn't something that you can commit actions to. It's just something that happens automatically based on your speed at that time. Mm -hmm. So this is really important tactically because you have to kind of think ahead in terms of which direction do we need to be facing when we make our next movement because you turn after your movement for the turn. Yeah, exactly. And then after the turn, you have the other analogous part to Mario Kart, which is shooting people. So whereas you have the red shells and other things like that in Mario Kart, here you have a cannon. You commit a certain number of points to there, that's your range, and then you shoot at someone. That cart draws a card, and then they can get hit for something. They can get a headshot, which will cause them to lose a certain card that they can't use the rest of the round. They might get something like the left wheel being broken or the right wheel being broken, which means that it costs extra to turn and other things like that. And so they're not only damage, they're also actual effects, mm -hmm. which, which is pretty interesting. Right. And it can lead to some very 
surprising plays. The other two actions are charge up, which just mm-hmm. increases your charge meter. Once the charge meter gets to 10, you get to draw free power up. And then repair is the final action of the turn. So say you put up three points into repair. You're going to repair three points of damage. You anticipate getting shot. Mm-hmm. All right, you think you've got your bases covered. And then all of a sudden, somebody shoots you, and in addition to taking damage... Now your wheel is blown and it costs you more to turn left. You're about to run into the right-hand wall on the board. Yep. And now your entire plan has just been thrown for a loop. Pretty much. So it's interesting because you can't repair those either. They stay with you for the rest of the game unless otherwise specified. So that really gives an interesting aspect to the damage. The other way that you can get damage is actually through the obstacles. But the obstacles can be both good and bad, depending. So there are different kinds. You have the rocks, which you take damage equal to your speed when you hit them. You've got the machine shop or something like that. The workshop or the factory, something to that effect. Which you drive into, you take damage, it explodes and hits everyone within range two. So that's also a pretty funny one. And then... There is like a pit trap, there's a troll, there's a few other things that will really affect the way that you're moving and if you get damaged or other things like that. Damage itself also really affects your speed because the damage track is the same as a speed track. So your speed always has to be one below what your damage is to a minimum of one. And so, you know, you're planning on going pretty far this turn, you get hit by someone or run over some kind of obstacle and your speed goes down to zero or you get a lot of damage and you can't go above one speed without repairing. It's an interesting mechanic. The other thing that the speed meter does is allow you to draw a card at the beginning of your turn. So you don't always start with the same number of cards. Even though everyone has the exact same combination and everything like that, the speed at which you're going determines how many you get to draw in order to prepare for the turn. So if you're going fast, you draw a lot less cards. But if you're going slow, you get to draw more, and you get to use those more effectively. Right. It's sort of a built-in counterbalance to the fact that, you know, if you're going fast, you not guaranteed, but you are likelier to be in the lead. So Mm -hmm. the people who are behind are going to have a better opportunity to catch up because they can commit more action points to the actions that they have available. And each half of the cart has its own deck of cards yeah so you know when it says draw six at speed one and draw one at speed six Mm -hmm. then that's not just a difference of five that's each player in the cart is drawing that difference so it's a difference of 10 cards so it can really make a difference in terms of the actions that are available and in terms of what you can do on any given turn that said sometimes people are super far in the lead and doesn't really matter what you do Yep. The game just progresses. You go through the uh, the first preliminary race. Whoever wins that and the second place person gets sponsorships. Winning is whoever gets across the finish line first, of course, who goes off the board at the other end first. The sponsorships can be really interesting power-ups. So last time we played, I won the preliminary race, and that gave me a shield, which negated one damage any time we took it, and the other one being the horn, which gave us plus one initiative. Right. And, you know, they sound like small bonuses, but when you consider, you know, if you commit more actions to shoot, Mm -hmm. all you get is more range. You don't get more damage. Yeah. So being able to shrug off one damage means you're basically impervious from shots unless somebody lucks into a really powerful card that deals extra damage. 
you know, you might say that obstacles are a bigger portion of the damage, but it can really give you an advantage when mm -hmm. the other people's sole method of interacting with you and trying to screw up your plans mm -hmm. is severely crippled. So the cards also each have their own special abilities. Yes. So there are four different factions that you can play, and that is the mummies, the elves, the dwarves, and the goblins. The dwarves have the battering ram, which lets them destroy any obstacle for one damage. The elves can grab power-ups from adjacent squares. The mummies can lasso anyone back towards them. And the goblins can turn before they move. Really cool extra abilities, which can be very useful. And really do affect how the game itself plays. They do. And that actually kind of leads into one of the criticisms I have of the game is that those abilities seem extremely unbalanced. You've got the dwarves, which say, you know, take one damage, remove an obstacle from the field. When that can be the difference between taking seven damage for running into a rock or, you know, changing your course when you hit an ice rink and just completely ignoring those other effects, it just makes the dwarves much, much more powerful, I feel, than the other mm -hmm. races. Being able to grab power-ups from adjacent squares, it's nice, but honestly, when I played, I played the elves, and the power-ups that we got didn't really seem all that effective. They didn't seem like they did all that much for us as much as would have the ability to just boom, 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 barrel through obstacles like the dwarves did. And ultimately it was, in fact, the dwarves who won the game. Exactly. And it's just a very strategic ability, and I don't think that there's anything better than it in the game. I do think there's a balance issue with that. The goblins also have a pretty interesting ability. The ability to turn before you move is extremely powerful as well. Maybe not as much so as the dwarves, but still quite a powerful ability. And then you have the lasso, which when we played the mummies last time, really not that useful. I could see it being useful, but it's literally bring someone back one square. You could steer them into some obstacles, which we tried to do, and it didn't really work out. Though useful, it's much more situational than right. most other ones. And with the design of the lasso in particular, I think the biggest, most effective use of it would be to pull someone into, say, for example, a rock that deals damage to them and reduces mm -hmm. their speed to zero, or just pull them into a situation where they're going to take damage and create more chaos. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is emblematic of one of the core problems of the game, that being it just strives more for chaos than for mm -hmm. playability. And some could say that that's a benefit. You know, they like chaos. They like that sort of fun... Mm -hmm. hectic atmosphere but when you're struggling to get through a race and struggling to make any sort of headway and then the person who ends up winning the race does so almost sheerly because of the you know abilities that they happen to have or because of the obstacles that they lucked into you know getting an ice rank to turn the right way it leads to a situation where the chaos that's created isn't controllable in a way that makes the game feel like a game. It more just feels like a situation that you're being thrust into. But yeah. maybe, you know, that's just me. I recognize that chaos isn't necessarily my favorite mechanic. I like to be able to control things. I like to be able to do what I want when I want. But mm -hmm. I think it's still a valid argument to say that your game is too chaotic and that limits playability. 
Yeah, there are definitely some games that I would say the same thing about. Flux, for example, which I think is extremely chaotic. Absolutely, and yet another game that I don't like for the same reason. Exactly. So there's a lot of chaos going in there, and it can be very frustrating trying to get a handle on it, trying to you know go around, and you're always hitting obstacles. You're, you have no way of trying to weave around them or anything like that for the most part, unless you're the dwarves and you barrel right through them. So there are definitely issues with that. Another issue that I wanted to bring up was the accessibility of the game. First off, we played with a person who was colorblind. They could not tell the difference between the cards. Right. There's no, in terms of the shape of the card, in terms of the designs that they mm-hmm. don't have, there's nothing to distinguish the cards except for color, which is a little thing, you know, but mm-hmm. for that particular player, if he didn't have someone next to him to say, this is your card, yeah. it would have made the game completely unplayable. Yeah. And the other thing about that is they give you stickers, but the stickers are all the same, too. So it's a bit frustrating with that. You also don't have like a certain assigned cart for each faction. They're sort of color-coordinated, but I think it would have been nice if they had mummy cart or something like that. Give us like a little molded plastic cart that you could put a mummy in or something. Like Just a little bit of a different feel that you could actually tell the difference from them, even if you don't see the color. Agreed. It's not all bad. You know, I do think that the mechanic, I suppose you could call it, of having to communicate non-verbally, or not even mm-hmm. communicate because you're you're not allowed to signal to your opponent, but having to get onto the same mental wavelength mm-hmm. as your opponent, I think that there are games that maybe do that in a way that I enjoy more. For example, Mysterium mm-hmm. requires the same sort of skills, but I think that within the context of this game, it functions perfectly well. Yeah. I think that it adds depth mm-hmm. to what would otherwise be kind of a shallow game. Yeah, I agree. I think that there are definitely some positives in the game, too. I think that it's still pretty enjoyable to try to do this race every once in a while. It's, I've never seen anything like it, trying to get something like Mario Kart into a board game. Agreed. It's certainly unique. Yeah, for sure. And though there are definitely refinements that can be done, it's by no means a horrible game. So with that, I think I'll segue into what I think of the game. I think that this is a play it for me. I have the game and I bought it more on the premise of this being Mario Kart the board game, which I think is a really interesting premise, but I don't think that it lived up to its full capability where Mario Kart is a lot more about the finesse and you ha- you can like move around, do dodges and other things like that. Here, you just have to plow through and hope that you're not going to get too screwed by either your partner or the board. So I would still suggest picking it up and playing it maybe once, and if you enjoy it, then buying it, but definitely not a buy for me. For me, I'm actually going to bust out the first skip, I believe, of the reworked review section. I just felt like everything that this game did or tried to do has been done better or differently by other games in ways that were more successful. That said... That's a very personal opinion. Again, I, I'm not a big fan of the huge amounts of chaos. Maybe if that's what you're into, this game is going to be more something for you. Mm-hmm. But I think that even for someone who enjoys that sort of thing, there's too much of it in ways that don't contribute to the game for me to advise playing it. So it's a skip it from me. All right. But we'll still give you a few comparisons to some games that if you like certain aspects of these games, you might still enjoy playing this one. First off, as I mentioned before, Flux. If you like the randomness of Flux, check it out. 
If you're into that kind of thing, that you're never sure what's gonna happen, it's always something different, something changing, something in your face, check that out. Ticket to Ride Team Edition is also very similar. You know, for us, we can't really think of another game in which you have just teams of two who are competing with other teams of two mm-hmm. in which you have to go with that sort of same mental wavelength type of gameplay. Um, so if you do like Ticket to Ride Team Asia, be prepared for something quite different, but you may also like crazy cards. Yeah, and the last one, we mentioned it as well, which was Mysterium, but that's, again, the same wavelength kind of thing. Crazy Cards is definitely a lot lighter than, I think, both of those games. It is definitely a lot more random and has just a lot more moving parts than those, but I still think that if you're really curious about that kind of, like, trying to guess what your partner is doing, trying to get that done, might be worth a try. Well, thank you for joining us for our review of Crazy Cards. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Dragon's Demise. Be sure to check out our newly launched YouTube channel, where we have been putting up our podcast with some accompanying images. Be sure to tune in next week for our review of Via Nebula.